Welcome to the Play On Podcast. This is your host, Nano Taggart. We are kicking off the 2015 summer season at the Utah Shakespeare Festival by publishing special episodes through October in which we interview the season's directors, actors, designers, and more so that you can get an inside look into the plays that you will experience here in Cedar City. Today, we're pleased to have Festival Artistic Director Brian Vaughn here to talk about directing Henry IV Part II and why it's important that the Utah Shakespeare Festival gives its audience a chance to see all of the history plays in succession. This summer, Brian will also be performing as Petruchio in The Taming of the Shrew, opposite Melinda Funstein as Catherine. Brian has been in over 40 roles in 19 seasons here at the Utah Shakespeare Festival. He directed Henry IV Part I last season, as well as performed as the Baker in Into the Woods and Watson in Sherlock Holmes' The Final Adventure. Thank you, Brian, for taking time out to do this. My pleasure. Uh, I know it's been, we, we had a fundraising event in, in Las Vegas last week. And you're, you're gearing up for, you know, company members to, to roll into town. So I know how busy you are. We really appreciate it. No problem, man. Absolutely. My pleasure. Uh, we want to talk about Henry IV, Part Two, obviously. Uh, part One last year. Anyone that saw it, I'm sure was am as amazed as I was. What an incredible play. It's, it's, I think we talked last time that it was, it's kind of one of the founding fathers of, of the modern action adventure. Yeah, You totally. know, there's kind of a little bit of everything in that play. And, yeah. And Part Two uh, carries the same torch, I think. And I'm wondering if you could just briefly, maybe, catch people up. If, if they didn't see part one, could, could, you t could you set them up to know what, what's going on in part two? Yeah, well, the interesting thing about part two is, I mean, it really is a continuation where we, when, when last we saw, yeah. you know, where we left off in this family, you know, the play begins right on the heels of the Battle of Shrewsbury mm -hmm. and the result of what that is and where Hal now is in his life and where his father is in his uh, ailing life. He's, mm -hmm. His sickness is starting to really take hold with him. And we also see where Falstaff is yeah. now, um, having gained a substantial pension and uh, <laughs> is beginning to abuse that, as well as still being a member of the king's mm -hmm. army. And, um, you know, his trying to maintain some sort of connection with Hal. I, I like to look at this play, really, I mean, it is a sort of Part two, I look at this as the Empire Strikes Back in the Star Wars yeah, trilogy, yeah. you know, the second chapter that has more characters, maybe not as much excitement as part one, yeah. more plot, but there's a lot more heart. And uh, it's very Chekhovian in its feeling as far as people falling away and trying to maintain the same connections, familial connections in their yeah. family, and um, what that is going to mean for Hal, obviously, who at the end of the play will become Henry yeah. V, which everyone knows. Which and everyone knows, yeah. So it is a sort of middle play, part two, um, in these three plays. I know Richard II, obviously, is before that, but yeah, I, I also think it's really fascinating that Shakespeare put them into two plays because something propelled him to say, I can't accomplish all this in one, in one one yeah. evening totally. <laughs> you know <laughs> which is a good thing i know us. yes yeah. thank goodness um but and one wonders obviously if he considered that when he st first started writing part one or or not or if but, he just got in up to his yeah. knees and he decided ah, i'm not gonna try there's so much story there yeah. 
And the interesting thing about part two is it really is uh, structurally very similar to part one, uh, him trying to rehash sort of similar events. And the thing that I take away from it is it's all sort of a variation of a theme. However, it's not as powerful as part one. And I think it's a little bit more melancholy. It's a little bit more um, darker. Yeah, for sure. And I really view this play as about age and uh, sickness and how one sort of escapes from that. And so sort of seeing them side by side, I think there's great power for our audience to view that, that the grand scope of what Shakespeare is trying to tell within yeah. this family drama. Part one being very much about youth and rebellion, and part two about... Kind of is much more about family and, and fatherhood. And, yeah. yeah, and the brothers are more of a significant role in part two. In fact, they're not even really in part one. Mm -hmm. um, he didn't officially write them into part one, but it becomes, it zeroes in on Henry and his about to pass the crown on to one yeah. of his, his, heirs, his and, heirs and what that means for England and the people. And um, I, I'm really excited to get started. And I think it's a very powerful play. And I, 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 I'm actually, I'm so excited for one reason, because this is only the second time we've produced it here at the festival. That's crazy that we've only yeah, done this play twice. I, I think so too. And I think it's a unique opportunity for them to see them back to back consecutively. I think that's cool. important in the viewing of them. Which is one of the big motivations for the history cycle. I mean, on the whole, right, is to give people a chance to see them all, not necessarily in the order they were composed, but in the order that the historical events that inspired them uh, happened. Absolutely. And, you know, I know Shakespeare was playing fast and loose with all, with a lot of the um, yeah. actual history. Yeah. And I, I don't think that matters at all because a lot of it is close. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and I do think that you do get a sense of these generations of people that were were establishing a country and a nation uh -huh. and, and and what that means for the common man as a playgoer watching that unfold, Absolutely. their background and their own history. This yes, would have, this would have been, especially for a lot of people that can't read and write in the audience, this would have been their exposure to the historical events that shaped their upper class. Right? Abs absolutely. I mean, that's... Uh, just as it was centuries before, you mm -hmm. know, uh, in drama. Yeah, it's sort of their newspaper in many ways, yeah, <laughs> I totally. think, and, and their history book. And I know that he's, you know, he's writing a a play about the the 14th century and, and earlier for the 16th century audience. Yeah. But he's telling about important events and that made up their, their life. And, you know, uh, and now... We're finding out other interesting things now, yeah. you know, historically about Richard III and these things that are starting to happen and evolve. And they, some of them weren't too far off from what was penned. What was actually penned, yeah, totally. Yeah, but, uh, but yeah, as a dramatist, he kind of knew what he was doing. For sure. Yeah. Is there, a, since, since you're doing all the history plays in order, is there a sense that, uh, as, as a director, uh, to take off your artistic director hat yeah, for sure. a minute, yeah. do you have a little less freedom in how you shape this play because of how you shaped Henry Four Part One and Richard and or or is there uh, is it the same challenge every time you step up to to direct a play in the history cycle? Uh, it's definitely uh, similar uh, in the sense of you know, I, you know I'm very much approaching this play as its own play and yeah. I'm I'm trying not to think about the influences from Part One, but it's impossible not to because yeah, there's a it's a continuation of the same characters and the mm -hmm. same thread and the same dramatic line, so all of that is playing in this and this season for this play we were very specific about carrying over the same design yeah. 
scenically, costumes, sound, props, all of that is uh, is really a continuation with just a little bit of lapsed time just in the way we're presenting them. There will be some actors who are carrying over into the production. Yeah. We have a lot of new actors oh, cool. coming into the fold, which I'm very excited about and was just a circumstantial type thing. You know, it's sometimes very hard to get people. Uh, and And also, when you're building a rep company, it's not always your show that gets the, you know, the who you want all the time. We're about company and rep. And And scheduling. uh, And, yeah. Yeah, but I'm glad we've been able to maintain that, and I think the design is going to very much help that uh, as far as bridging that gap. Is there any any new performers you want to you want to tease about that you're particularly excited about? Well, yeah, and I, I mean, know there's somebody you connected with in, in Orlando, if I'm not mistaken. Right? There was, you know, we we last season Henry Warnitz played John Falstaff, Falstaff yeah. and was a fabulous Falstaff, and I loved working with Henry. And based on some circumstances, some personal um, things going on in his life, he was unable to come back this year, and we support that and and respect that and. You know, couldn't won't, I won't say that I wasn't you know bummed because I love working with him. Yeah, he's How, fab- fabulous. Yeah, a fabulous actor and a great um, artist. However, it it opened up an opportunity to bring in somebody new into the fold. And I had just recently worked with an actor in Orlando on The Merry Wives of Windsor, yeah. where he was playing Falstaff, Falstaff. for me. <laughs> that turns out. Yeah, an actor by the name of John Aline, and um, he's played Falstaff. A, a couple other times, and uh, I'm really thrilled to bring him in to the production. And I think he'll be a new voice of the same character, and I think it'll actually work quite well with the play because you'll see a little bit of a different side of the same guy. I'm really looking forward to him because he has a great balance of the light and the dark, which I think is very awesome. present in the role of Falstaff. He's and, not and always he's, a, he's an established actor. This isn't. Oh, very uh, much so. Well, yeah, yeah. He's a New York actor. He's worked yeah. in New York, and um, you know, been on and Broadway, years. and and yeah. works a lot regionally. And he's a great guy. I'm very, very excited to have him. If we could bring back to the the melancholy and the family issues you talked about. Yeah. Uh, in part two, when I read the play and when I imagine it being staged, I'm struck by uh, the conflict between power and, and having a family. Mm-hmm. It's almost like people in this position in this family at this time. Having a family, you know, in the normal sense, the separate spheres of family and, and state, mm-hmm. it just didn't happen, right? Uh, th- these were inseparable things. Yeah. And uh, there's a deep sadness ab- about the inability for the characters to really uh, have normal relationships yeah. with their kin. And uh, is that something that strikes you about the play? Or oh, very you... much so. I mean, the play and all of these plays, I think, in this cycle specifically, revolve around legitimacy. Yeah. And somebody being a legitimate ruler, heir to the throne, and staking their claim. I mean, the whole play begins with Henry IV usurping the crown from Richard II. And what that meant in this medieval society about, um, you know, succession is really what this is about. And one son who doesn't agree and then splits from his father and then is forced to become the heir to the throne. And what that means dramatically and personally, and it is the balance of, of family mm-hmm. and, uh, and honor in many ways and what honor means for leadership, both on a, as a parent yeah. <laughs> as yeah, well yeah. as a king. You know, the play is very much about truth, you know, and, and lies and, and 
finding the truth in all things. Um, yeah. This play particularly starts with this sort of theatrical device called rumor, which is sort of the whispers that are out there and people whispering um, fallacies across the, the nation. And in many ways, Hal's journey is one of finding truth and legitimacy yeah. and ownership and what that means for him in wearing the crown. Um, there is a sense at the end of part one that Hal has gone through this rite of passage, right? He traded his youthful days of frolicking with Falstaff for stepping into this responsibility, but not long into part two if we realize that it's not quite so simple. Yeah. Right? There's a lot more to him taking on this role. Yeah, and the choice that he has to make in turning away people, mm -hmm. turning away something in order to succeed in something else. That's the pathos in the play in many ways yeah. uh, and what that means for those who do get turned away as well as the hope that exists by him turning them away and what that next chapter means for mm -hmm. those that had their doubts. It's very human, very uh, immediate. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I think is revelatory in the work mm -hmm. that we can look at that now and go, wow, that's exactly what's happening totally. in our own life. I mean, I was just over in England for two weeks, and you look at the, you know, the royal family there and that lineage and what's about to happen with the queen when she passes and yeah. what that means for Charles and then his son being the heir to the throne. And I mean, it's at a different level, but it's about family and honor. Honor you know? and legitimacy, <laughs> the, same, the same stuff. Yeah, yeah. exactly. For it's sure. very, very present. Um, and it's thrilling, you know, and Shakespeare weaves it in in a beautiful way that is both comic and outrageous as well as beautiful and poetic yeah. and rich and meaningful so how um this is a hal um is a character that's you know sort of at the top of the totem pole in society or, or near it at least uh what do, what does shakespeare do with this character to make him matter to members of the audience you know the the plebeians among us well i think he he's the guy who crosses both planes you know he mm -hmm. he's the and you even see that in the verse and the prose of how he bounce he he bounces Moves in and out of yeah the back, verse yeah. back and forth into speaking people's language. Yeah. He will be the one king who uses rhetoric to his extreme advantage in Henry V, and what that yeah. means about swaying people based on language and how you communicate totally. to both the lower class and the upper class. Mm -hmm. um, that's the thing that I think people recognize with him. Uh, they recognize truth. And again, that's his vision, which, which I, you know, is a very prominent theme in a lot of Shakespeare. Hamlet has the same journey about yeah. finding the truth amidst all of the disease around him. Yeah. And Hal is very similarly woven. Um, a guy who's seeking fact and then now being present to, to truth as I say. Yeah, and I think that that's very extremely universal for anybody to accept, oh, no matter what their circumstances. Yeah, um, yeah. And it, turn, it turns out that uh, some of the things uh, that his father, some of the issues his father had, has taken with him over the years, some of the things and times he spent uh, end up becoming strengths Yeah, uh, with his affairs of state. and Absolutely. Uh, because he can, like you said, he can talk to everyone, and language is a tool of hierarchy. Right? Yeah. Definitely. 
you know, and there's obviously debate when, and that's one of the great things about Henry V, when you get into that chapter of his life, there's a lot of debatable action that he takes oh, in the play sure. yeah. that uh, mm-hmm. one could view him very much uh, as manipulative or sort mm-hmm. of a warmonger, as it were. For me, I think the, it's more of a quest of conscience and somebody trying to do the right thing. For sure. And that's something that's really difficult when you're at a point of war yep. and not pleasing everybody all the time, yeah. but keeping the state at the forefront of everything. For sure. You know. The, the, there is a sense, however you view the historical figure, Henry V, there is a sense, at least in the plays, though, that, okay, we have our king. You know, I mean, I mean, it's not as the target necessarily isn't isn't on his back like it was his father's. There, there's some sense of stability. Yeah. Uh, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, you know, I guess is debatable. But. Yeah, and I think you know, I think one of the things that's beautifully woven in all the plays is there's also while he's also somebody who is out there amongst the people, he also exhibits a lot of isolation in the play For and sure. slowly falling into his own sense of I can only get so close. Some some echoes that were some things we saw in Richard, yeah, and in the preceding play, right? A lot of it, sort of uh, internal dialogue. Absolutely, and you know, it's even voiced in lines in the play, and in this play specifically, when Henry says it about himself: "Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown." Wears the crown, yeah. About taking on all that stuff, it's a very lonely existence, and I think you know Henry five how begins to accomplish some of those things more um, gracefully than mm-hmm. some of the previous rulers. And I think that's one of the reasons why he's viewed as more, you know, one of the more successful rulers, even though he himself has his own flaws. Absolutely. Which, again, is completely human. Exactly. You know. But he was the first in the line to step into the position and have the opportunity to ask these hard questions. And like, yeah. like you said, really look at truth. Yeah, and there's there's a sense of unifying a nation too in in this whole thing, and that that again is the thing that's interesting about Henry four one and two, yep. that the nation gets completely split apart, and Henry is plagued by various factions trying to take over his reign or yeah. or try to conquer his kingdom, and you get that with the Welsh and also the North. In both of the plays about people trying to you know, get something out of this whole mm-hmm. thing, out of this split. And it's Hal's job to really try to unify that, uh, and he, which he does in Henry V. That is the debatable thing about when you go to war, you know, and unifying a nation. For him, I think it's the pursuit, again, going back to the legitimacy. For sure. About his own legitimacy in this world. Yeah. And this is one of the, this is colonialism. This yeah. is kind of where some of that stuff starts, right? Oh, yeah, where, very you know, much so. With the Welsh and with some of the people down south, it, it's it's kind of where it begins. Uh, yeah. Reaching the kingdom, kind of reaching further because it, it sensed a threat initially, right? Absolutely. And we see that even today. I mean, with That's a true, recent yep. decision with, you know, with Great Britain of what that means is Great Britain, uh, uh-huh. Scotland versus England and all of that. Yeah, we're uh, still working through these same exact issues, right? Yeah, very much. What actors are returning might, that people might recognize and might have, have cheered yeah, uh, well, last we have, season? Um, well, in this particular production, uh, Sam Ashdown is returning awesome. to play the role of Prince Hal. A lot of people are going to be pleased to hear that. Yeah, I mean, he Sam is a great, great guy. And um, 
really fits the bill with this role, I think, uh, where he is personally in his life and how the, the role is sort of embodying him and him embodying the role, I think, is just at the right place in his career. And I, I'm excited to work with him again. Um, Larry Bull, who played right um, Bolingbrook and Richard II, Henry and Henry IV Part One, he will be back this season Excellent. as Henry again in Henry IV Part Two, And that talk about an amazing journey for him. I mean, being able to be inside all three of these plays in the same yes, role is something you do not see very often. It's true. Um, that he would played Bolingbroke and then Henry in both parts of Henry. I don't know if too many actors who have been able to say that. Especially inside of a two and a half years, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Larry's a, a, you know, another fabulous actor and such a great ensemble member. You know, those two, I think, are really teamed up really well as father and son. Cool. And um, there's, a little, bit, there's a little bit more interaction between the two in, in this play. Very much right? so, yeah. You know, it all sort of comes to this peak in the play about what's yeah. going to happen between the two of them. And we had some sort of resolve at the end of part one, but, you know, there is a sense of it's still not, everything's still not peachy keen, as it yeah. were, you know. It's uh, they have some. There had to be some sort of resolve. Yeah, right? they have some yeah. demons they still need to work out. And um, Shakespeare sort of, I think, st structurally does a great job of weaving that to the very last minute in the play in the plays. Uh, so they're both back. Um, Brie Murphy is going to be back as, uh, as Mistress Excellent. Quickly, and Brie's a fabulous actress in the company. Uh, then we have some new actors who are taking on new roles in the season, but uh, have been with us, you know, Before, uh, in yeah. the company. Drew Shirley is playing awesome. the role of Pistol, which will be great. Oh, that'll be awesome. Uh, David Pichette is playing the role of, uh, of Shallow, Justice Shallow. Excellent. He's a fabulous character in Shakespeare and has some beautiful scenes with Falstaff. Uh, I'm really looking forward to have him in the mix. So, yeah, there's a, a bunch of new people. And, um, right on. It's a lot to and look old forward to. And, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to working with the company. Awesome. Okay, before we sign off, can I, can I trouble you to give just a – a short 30-second pitch on, on why people listening to this podcast need to come see this play and need need to jump into the history cycle. Yeah, I mean, I, I the one thing about the Henry Force cycles that I, I, I think are, they're, they're really accessible for, yeah. for the playgoer. You know, they, they get more and more complex as they go on uh, into the Henry Sixes and so forth. However, they're not done that often. It's really one gigantic family drama when it's played out. And even if you don't know about all of the history and the lineage and all of that stuff, it doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, it's about drama and it's about people trying to get what they want and some people getting it and other people not and how they go about in this yeah. power struggle for the throne. And I think in many ways, you just have to let them wash over you. It, they're epic in nature as well as completely intimate and and powerful yep. and searing that's one of the reasons we a we wanted to present them in succession because each of them have extreme value but also it's easier to digest when you see this sort Absolutely. of arc so it's a rare opportunity i think for a playgoer and i i mean i welcome that i think that that's a thrilling opportunity to see something you're not going to see very often absolutely them in succession like this if you've seen part one somewhere else, but you haven't seen part two, it's a great opportunity. Part two is very rarely done. I mean, this is the second time in the history of this festival in, that we've yeah, ever done it. Yeah, 54 years. Yeah. 
And um, and same when we get into the Henry Sixes. You you can also see the playwright at work, and I think that that's great for you know an, a, a fan of the work to go, oh wow, I see how he might have made yeah. this more potent in this other play, but I see what he was doing in this play and how that connects. Um, there is a sense that he had to look at a bigger picture to make to make these work. Absolutely. Yeah. And there are things in this play that I think people will come and they'll go, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that was from this play. Yep. That, oh, that's a, I thought that was from another play. Yep. Uh, things that Falstaff says or that Henry will say or how. These lines that pop out and you go, oh, that's from Henry IV Part Two. I had no idea. No I thought idea, that yeah. might have been from Henry V or Richard yep. II. So I, I, I think it's a really exciting time uh, for a playgoer to see something that's rarely done that has so much in it. Yeah. Uh, and I think that they will, they will find that they're very, very rewarding uh, when you leave and that awesome. um, immediate for them and not as challenging as one might think. I'm sold. Do thank it. You, thank you, Brian. Get there. <laughs> right on. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, there's a gazillion productions of Othello you can see. Absolutely. And of Macbeth. And of Macbeth. And but of Hamlet. To, yeah, yeah, but to see Henry IV Part Two, that doesn't happen very often. So put it on your bucket list. <laughs> <laughs> very cool. And come this summer. Right on. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much, Brian. Absolutely. Thank you. That was fabulous. Thank you for catching this episode of the Play On Podcast. If you haven't listened to David Ivers in our last episode, make sure to go back and listen. Also, if you don't want to miss the upcoming episodes, including our conversation with Fred C. Adams, subscribe to this podcast on your computer, iPad, or iPhone on iTunes. Just search Utah Shakespeare Festival Play On Podcasts on your podcast app or visit our webpage by clicking Play On Podcasts in the Quick Link section sidebar of the festival's bard.org homepage. 